Welcome to the Outside and Active podcast, where we share stories from the great outdoors with you. I'm your host, Matt Coyne, and on this episode, we speak with one of our last great living explorers, Sir Ranulph Fiennes. Ranulph is a British adventurer and novelist that is best known today for his various exploits around the world. He is especially hailed for being the first man to cross Antarctica from one side to the other by the poles on foot. He holds several Guinness World Records, and as an author, he released over a dozen fiction and non-fiction books, most notably biography of famous explorer Captain Robert Falcon Scott, and then his latest book, Shackleton. Shackleton is an engaging new account for the adventure, his life, and his incredible leadership under the most extreme of circumstances. We caught up with Sir Renault Fiennes at the National Snow Show, where we talked about some of his accomplishments and the science behind his adventures. I hope you enjoy the episode. Historians write book about Scott and Shackleton and all the yeah. pole people, um, but they have never experienced the extremes yeah. that I do. So that I'm writing not so much from a historian's point of view, of course, but for the the, the amazement at what he did do back then, mm-hmm. uh, about the time of the First World War when he all his expeditions failed, but he survived. He had 500 days on, on a ice floe floating around in an area where there are no people and huge waves. And he managed to survive uh, and save all his men at the end of the 500 days. Uh, mutiny and all that sort of stuff, starvation, scurvy, extreme cold, going in the roaring 40s in a small boat, you know, and navigating, uh, um, even drinking anything. Um, how they survived is the most amazing cold survival story that I've ever come across. Well, and you've, you've obviously almost had isolation in some of these areas yourself. What's like to relate to what they went through? What was, what's that like kind of being, I mean, there was a couple of them, but what was that? Yeah, like? Just admiration at him, Shackleton as a character. Um, he's sort of Irish, mm-hmm. um, set out at the same time. Lawrence of Arabia, who's hot, not cold. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've been writing a book about both of them having been in the Arab army, but mostly the expeditions that I've done have been to break world records um, of a polar nature. There are only two poles, mm-hmm. and historically, our rivals are to break the, the physical and geographical records are the Norwegians. Okay. We, we don't call them rivals, we call them enemy. Oh, enemy. Um, yeah, to keep our group. <laughs> Um, up ahead, but on, yeah. <laughs> on expeditions in the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were no, uh, until 91, no polar orbiting satellites available. So there was no GPS or sat-nav or sat-phone. Oh. So for me to navigate 2,500 miles with no features in Antarctica bigger than America and no Tesco's, um, I'd have one watch on Greenwich time, the other one on local time. I'd look to see where the sun was and I'd immediately know exactly where to go. Wow. Um, but that was Shackleton and Scott. They weren't yeah. doing the same sort of thing. Yeah. And f- for our scientific work, I mean, the person who organized all the expeditions was basically my late wife, mm-hmm. um, who w- became the first uh, female ever to get the polar medal from the Queen. Mm-hmm. That was the scientific stuff that we were doing, looking into the ionosphere from an area. We would have a lockdown um, for eight months waiting for the sun to come back before wow. trying to do the first complete crossing yeah. one way yeah. of Antarctica back in the 70s. Okay. But by the 90s, um, there was GPS. 
Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, do things much quicker. So is it easier? <laughs> much easier yeah. and much uh, warmer. You get into the tent instead of at the end of a cold day, mm-hmm. getting out there, putting the tripod up, getting the theodolite with the bu- bubbles settled and so on to yes. know where you were. Yeah. Then you get the drills out because the scientific work that we were doing, okay. with the drill cores, yeah. they had to be very, very accurate, even yeah. though, you know, we weren't, had no GPS. So things were more like 50 years before when Scott died and Shackleton yeah. tried to do the first crossing of Antarctica. And we proved basically that if his ship hadn't sunk in the middle of the flows and they'd gone floating around for 500 days and amazingly survived, thanks to Shackleton, um, they, the critics later said, well, if his ship hadn't sunk and it had le- landed him and his team of three and the dogs on one side of Antarctica, uh, it would have failed anyway. They would have died of starvation horribly, so it's just as well for them oh, really? that, they, that the ship sunk. We disproved that in early 1990s because I went with the director of APRE, Army Personnel Mm -hmm. Research Establishment in Farnborough, Mm -hmm. who's now a professor in charge of stress. His expertise was studying the process of starvation on a body under great stress. So I was the guinea pig alongside himself. And, for instance, he would make you take um, special nasty liquid and drink it yeah. every five days, and then for 24 hours you'd have to pee into bottles and you'd keep wow. your pee as part so of your stu- study of starvation. Okay. Yeah, and um, I got skeletal in the 97 days. But we managed to prove that Scott, who did, Shackleton, who did have dogs, we didn't have dogs, Yeah. Um, could have done the same thing from where his ship would have set out if it yeah. had managed to land. Yeah to the pole, which was unexplored totally, so you yeah. wouldn't know whether cross-country skis or snowshoes or what would be better. Yeah. Um, and dogs, you know, they could eat each other and then they could eat the bones and marrow. So, and they could keep. And they could keep going. Amazing. But the, the, the critics say, no, it wouldn't have been possible. But we proved in 91 that we got from the same place, um, Vaxel Bay, mm-hmm. an island, um, and we got to the pole, at which point I said to Professor Mike Stroud, I think we're, we're dying, we're 11,000 feet above sea level, we're running on empty. Um, it's like much higher, actually, because of the thinness of the air at the poles. Um, 10,000 feet would be like 14,000 feet mm-hmm. on Everest sort of okay. thing. And, um, yeah, so we got to the pole and I said to him, I think we better get out here, we're going to die. And he said, no way, I've got a contract with Lancet Medical Magazine on the topic of advanced starvation. I weighed us at the pole, and we we are starving even more than I had hoped for his experiment. And, I mean, I have to say, I I hated Mike uh, because of that. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, but the hate soon goes away (laughs) once you get into a warm tent for a bit. Well, how, from when you got there, because I think a lot of people think, you know, it's an incredible challenge getting there. And it's the same, I would imagine, for climbing Everest or something like that. Once you get there, you have to get home. How 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 did that happen? Well, on Everest, um, I failed from the uh, Nepal from mm-hmm. the Tibet side, yeah, which is more difficult than mm-hmm. Nepal. And uh, I was sort of sixty or something like that, and I'd had a massive heart attack. When I got to twenty eight and a half thousand feet on that first attempt, you know. My friend, who's a black South African, um, he was the first black man to climb Everest from uh, the 
that Nepal was high. Yeah. He wanted to do it from Tibet. That's why we tried from Tibet. Okay. He got to the top but had oxygen starvation and nearly died. Wow. I had a massive angina attack. I, I took glycerine trinitrate because I mm-hmm. had a previous one. And they, three days later, they got me down to the base camp again. And um, I, doc, the doctor said, you try again. And I said, no way. And he said, don't be silly. If you go on the other side from Nepal, it's dead easy. Oh, really? So um, I then had to train to try and get rid of vertigo. Okay. So my Kenton Cool, wonderful mountain guide, taught me for a bit how to get rid of the vertigo by going up a thing called the north face of the Eiger in um, Switzerland. Okay. And then 2008, I had a second go on Everest on the easy side. And my Sherpa's father's body appeared and we watched other people being buried. Mm-hmm. So I wimped out. But the next year, 2009, by which time I was an old age pensioner, the first OAP to get up there, Daily Express said it was easy because I had a free bus pass. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I got up there that year without any trouble because the guide, the Sherpa, sadly died last year in an avalanche. Oh, okay. He was wonderful. He didn't treat me like a tourist. He yeah. watched what I was doing wrong. And it was dead easy. And I couldn't work out why I'd messed it up twice. Wow. Wow. And maybe, like, there'll be a lot of... I know my kids have kind of got this eyes wide open for exploration and things. There's a lot of things been found already. But for for young people that are kind of wanting to get into this kind of exploration sort of world, what might be a good suggestion for how they can start or... Where they begin to yeah, sort of look at things like this. Buy my book on Shackleton. <laughs> and, and if they're not put off by the horror of what can happen to you if things go slightly wrong, yeah. as they did with him, um, then realise the black picture before you go into it. Yeah. And then everything... If we're choosing people for expeditions, and on one expedition alone we went through 800 applicants for two people, wow. what, who did we end up with? Great explorers? No, one... Ollie Shepherd was a beer salesman in London for Whitbread right. for nine years before. He'd never been on an expedition. Wow. Charlie from South Africa had a butcher's business in Cape Town, which went bust, so he okay. joined the British Army as a corporal. Yeah. Those two we chose, not on their skills at all, just on their character. Okay. Because uh, you, can, you can teach skills, you can't change okay. character. So how did you test the character? Was it kind of tests? On working out how strong their motivation was. Mm-hmm. Because once you get out there um, and after a week, you're, th- you're getting blisters and crutch rot and teeth falling out and all the rest of it. A wimpish voice comes into your head and says, I can't keep this up. This is not far worse than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't go any longer. I need to have people who can fight that voice that comes uninvited, wimpish, mm-hmm. to try and stop them. And I found that out of 800, when we were taking them down in the Welsh mountains, of course, and we made them join the TA, Territorial mm-hmm. Army, SAS, which got rid of about 90% without yeah, us having to waste time on them. Yeah. The ones that got through, nearly all had a faith. Mm-hmm. It didn't have to be a religious faith, but some strong faith. I mean, I got brought up in South Africa, and it was called Anglican, the, the faith was, mm-hmm. and it's quite strong, but, it, but it's not strong enough to deal with crutch rot and mm-hmm. the sort of things that happen to you. And your head. Yeah. So I, like everybody else, should invent their own fighting method of their yeah. weak side. Yeah. And uh, I, my own particular answer was my dad was killed in the war four months before I got born mm-hmm. and met him. But I reckon that mum told me about him. He's my great character that I respect. 
And I reckon on these circumstances, when I begin to want to stop, uh, I reckon he's there beside me. And I don't want to make him ashamed by being the first to give up. Yeah. But I'm wanting to give up. Yeah. Therefore, at the end of the 10th day, having done your 16 nautical miles that you yeah. have to do every day if you're going to cross it, um, at the end of the day, I'm looking at the others in the tent, you know, hoping one of them has broken his leg and will be first to give up. <laughs> so give, a, give an excuse for the first person to go. Yeah. yeah. So, so when you're checking people, you're looking for motivation yeah. is number one key. Amazing. Okay, and I had um, a couple of questions I asked some people. So we're at the National Snow Show. So I'll just do um, a couple of those. One person said, for the day one of your challenge before you set off, what do you have for breakfast? Um, we had the same breakfast throughout. And the man that I've been travelling with is from the Army Personnel Research Establishment. He's okay. the director at Farnborough. Yeah. And uh, he planned all, all our food starting a week before you go and to answer your question the the diet that he that he put on us was 69 percent fat really? for at least 100 days really? and i had another massive attack, attack heart attack and a double bypass after that i could imagine which I blame on him. Um, <laughs> i'm sure but, you haven't let him live that down either <laughs> no but what he what he came up with is you're carrying your food mm-hmm. so you want maximum calorie for minimum weight okay that is why you have fat yeah, because okay. you get much more calorie for less weight from fat yeah. than you do from protein or carbohydrate. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, the other one um, that I thought was, was kind of interesting, apart from essential kit and survival and food, what's one thing that you can't leave home without on some of these challenges? I had on those challenges a picture of my uh, late wife mm-hmm. of thirty-eight years. Um, who came up with most of the suggestions since the 1960s when we did the first complete journey up the longest river in the world, the Nile. Mm-hmm. And she decided to use two-seater hovercraft prototypes to do that. Amazing. And she normally had the idea, which would have to be a world record, uh, at breakfast. Oh, really? Yeah, and I can remember when she decided to do the first journey around Earth vertically without flying. Yeah. Um, I was sent by her to a library to find out the best route because you could go that way or that way. And, um, yeah, I discovered that there was a place called Antarctica, uh, (laughs) which was cold. The two of us had been in Inverness at minus two, but we weren't exactly experts. Mm -hmm. And she said, plot off a map in a library. So I went to the Royal Geographical Society Library. And I found that nobody had ever, as a single team, crossed Antarctica. And that was only one bit of the, you know never mind crossing the Arctic Ocean by the Pole and Siberia and so wow. on, and the Northwest Passage, all in one single expedition. So I came back from the library and I, I told her, you know, it's not a good idea. Yeah. And she got quite unpleasant. <laughs> and so I went back to the library and um, sponsored by the SAS. Shackleton was sponsored by the Royal Navy and the mm-hmm. Merchant Navy. You have to have a government behind you. And uh, I went to the Special Air Service because we needed an office in London and they were giving up some of their space near Sloan Square. Okay. And uh, they, unfortunately, seven years previously, had thrown me out of the SAS for blowing up civilian property. Um, <laughs> so that I didn't have a good record. No. I'd been sent back to my tank regiment. Okay. Uh, and they said, well, look, we like your idea of this fantastic round the world, this ambitious, it's like what we would like to do, yeah. but we don't like you. And I explained that I'd matured since playing that stuff up. And um, <laughs> so they gave us their wonderful barracks, the King's Road in London. Yeah. 
And for seven years, Ginny and I worked at getting everything free. We had 1,900 sponsors for one expedition. Wow. One was a nice strengthened ship. Yeah. One was a little ski plane. We never flew, but we dropped uh, prefab huts in Antarctica. So okay. 400 miles inland and that sort of yeah. thing. So, um, yeah, 1,900 sponsors for one expedition. Six. Seven years' work, unpaid, getting that done. Wow. Working at weekends in, in pubs in Kings Road in order to pay the gas bill. Yeah. And um, that expedition took three years. It could have taken five years uh-huh. to complete. At the end of which, seven years' work and three years' travel, ten years of my wife and me, our lives, unpaid. Mm. Yeah. That's a good, and was, was there a motivation to be the first to do it? Or was that, was that in your mind at the time? Or was it just, I'd like to do it? It was totally and utterly, we will beat the Norwegians mm-hmm. uh, and we will raise money for whichever charity we're working for. Sure. I tell you, one was British Heart Foundation because mm-hmm. it's a bit selfish uh, I'd had it. And um, then there was Marie Curie, MS, multiple mm-hmm. sclerosis. We uh, paid four million to build the first research centre in Cambridge okay. for MS. Altogether, as of recently, we're up to 18.9 million for UK charities. Just giving, you know? Yes. Yeah, they kindly voted me in 2011 as the top UK fundraiser. Amazing. Second, who came second, was not a million. It was, I think he got 100,000, was Delalio, the rugby player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My charity at the time, I think we won Best New Charity of the Year when you oh, won yeah. that. I remember Good that. Hands. Um, yeah. yeah, amazing. Incredible. Um, okay, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, I'd like to, your book, is it called Shackleton? It's called Shackleton. And it's out now? Yeah, and it's, um, the, the, the thing on the inside is, it, if you want to write about hell on ice, it pays if you've been there. What an epic comment to end on with Sir Ranulph Fiennes. To listen to more of our inspiring guests, as well as read articles, top tips, and more interviews, head over to outsideandactive.com. If you'd like to attend the National Outdoor Expo for free, use the code OUTSIDE at checkout at nationaloutdoorexpo.com. Until next time, enjoy the outside.